The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Uh, this morning I thought I'd like to start with a story. You know, these are icebreakers, these stories, and always good fun. And this is a story that I've told before. Some will know, so uh, some won't know. It's a long time ago that I told it. And this is a story about Nasruddin. And Nasruddin was a uh, Sufi uh, holy man or teacher, a saint, but also a bit of a, um, a scallywag, as Ajahn Brahm would say, a bit of a scallywag. had a good sense of humor, and many things he did they had a good point, but they were uh, very funny as well. So one day the people in the village that he lived in decided that they would have some fun and ask him to come to the mosque to deliver the sermon. I think it's on the Friday they give the sermon. And this is you know, quite an honour. But they were thinking they'd get some entertainment out of this as they saw him flounder <laughs> and probably uh, contradict himself and so forth. And so they invited him and he came and he got up uh, to uh, give the talk. And the first thing he said to them was, do you know what I'm going to speak to you about? And they said, no, no, don't know. And, he's, and then he, he was disgusted. He, he said, what's the point of me talking to you if you don't know what I'm going to talk about? And then he got up and he left the mosque. And they were all deflated. Of course, they thought they were going to have a great laugh, you know. And then they thought, well, we can outfox him. Next week, we'll invite him again. And so they did. And they had another strategy for the next week. And he came on the, at the appointed time, Friday, to give the, uh, the sermon on the, on the holy day. And he got up and he said to them the same. He said, do you know what I'm going to speak about? And they said, yes, yes, we know what you're going to speak about. And he said, what's the point? What's the point? I might as well go home. And he did. He got up and went home. So the people thought, again, deflated, they thought this another lost opportunity for a lot of fun <laughs> at Merriman. And so they thought, well, we'll invite him again, and we've got another strategy in mind, which you probably have thought of as well. And so they invited him to come on the Friday, the following Friday, and he came at the appointed time and got up to speak. And of course he said, do you know what I'm going to speak to you about? And half the, uh, the people there said, no, we don't know what you're going to speak about. And the other half said, yes, we know what you're going to speak about. And he said, well, the half that knows what I'm going to speak about, please tell the half that doesn't know. And he got up and left. So, so they didn't get the best of Nazareth. But I'm not about to do that. But it does, it, it does point to some of the ways we can listen to talks. If we, if we have our own opinions, our strong opinions, we can't hear what the other person is saying. And if we have no um, familiarity, the territory, what the, the subject is, the discussion is about, then that is very difficult for us as well. So it does point to a, a, deeper, a deeper meaning. There's probably lots of more meanings you can get out of that as well. So this morning I was actually going to talk uh, about the, this is going to be an introduction to the Noble Eightfold Path. Do people know about the Noble Eightfold Path? I think most people do. And I may do a series of uh, talks, because I'm here for three months, so that's quite a good opportunity. So, um, but when we, uh, when we contemplate, Noble Eightfold Path is central to Buddhism, uh, for those who don't know. It's the, it's the practice of Buddhism 
that the Buddha taught, and he said, if we practice this, we can experience the ending of all suffering and uh, all unsatisfactoriness. We can experience the highest happiness. So this is the practice aspect of Buddhism. And it's very interesting, I was reading Bhikkhu Bodhi last night, and he said, if you're given the choice between the theory or the doctrine of Buddhism, which is, of course, the Four Noble Truths, or the practice, which do you, which do you go for? Do you go, if you had to choose between theory and the practice, which would you go for? Everybody's got it right, actually. <laughs> yes, practice. Practice is actually very, very important. The theory is important too, otherwise we may not be practicing in a, a very uh, effective way. We may not be practicing in the most efficient way to achieve the goal. So, but practice is, is the most important thing because if we practice, we can realize the teachings. And this is the whole point of it, not just to know the theory of the teaching, but actually to practice and realize it for ourselves. Because Buddhism, unlike other religions, is not a faith system. It's not a great, you know, we talk about great faiths. And in those faiths, you have to have faith in the, uh, the uh, like Christ or uh, um, it, in Islam, we have to have faith in Allah and so on, and in Judaism as well. Faith is very, very important. But in Buddhism, the emphasis is on direct experience. Of course, the Buddha is telling us his experience, but we all have to realize, isn't it, that's his experience, his knowledge, not ours. And we have to make it ours for ourselves. And we can only do that by practice. And one of the, one of the criteria the Buddha mentioned for checking uh, whether he was an enlightened being was the third one, apart from, you know, the usual ones, if you see an enlightened, somebody who claims to be an enlightened being, the Buddha said, you can check me out. He said, you know, you can check up on their behavior, whether they speak or they do things that are obviously coming from negative states of mind, from unwholesome states of mind. That's a very good way to tell if somebody's enlightened or not. Because if they've got anger or a lot of greed, very likely they're not, well, they're not enlightened, for sure. But the third, the most, uh, one of the most, uh, the last method he, he mentioned was for checking up if the Buddha was an enlightened being, is to practice what he taught and to see if you reach the same results, if you achieve the same things that the Buddha taught and many other um, disciples of the Buddha taught. And in English we have this saying, don't we, proof of the pudding. That's the proof of the pudding, really. So he's, he's really not inviting us to believe him. He's not like this car salesman who says, believe me, believe me, or when they're selling homes. Uh, dodgy homes or dodgy cars, and uh, he's not asking us to believe, he's asking us to find out for ourselves. And in actual fact, that gives us that faith, doesn't it, that confidence to practice, because immediately somebody asks us to believe in them. I don't know about you, but for me, I sort of, mm. <laughs> it's sort of an ask, isn't it? It really is quite a big ask. And also, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it sort of creates a bit of a block in a way. But when somebody says, please investigate, whether my claims are true or not, you sort of, you know, you're much more prepared to listen and uh, try, actually try what he's teaching. So this is a very important thing about Buddhism, about uh, the Buddha's teaching. And I think when we contemplate the Noble Eightfold Path, things that uh, are very important, that I've thought are very important to me, is what, what has, uh, you know, for each of us actually, what has brought us here to the center, you know, why are we here? What has led us to, to practice a spiritual path, whether it be Buddhism, Christianity, or whatever? 
you know, what is it that drives us? What is the importance of a spiritual teaching? And uh, I think for everyone, myself particularly, people are always asking me, you know, why did you become a monk? You know, like <laughs> almost like you know something that's uh, like a Martian or something. <laughs> why did you become a monk? As if it's incredibly uh, uh, extraordinary, or you know. So the reasons I became a monk are probably the very reasons that many of you came here, you know, to a Buddhist center, and they're not a big mystery. You know, sometimes the personal deta details of why people become monks or nuns can be quite uh, quite amazing actually it can be so so one of the there are lots of reasons why people uh, practice a spiritual path or come to a spiritual path and the most common is that they're born as a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim that is very common and then but out of those people who are born into a religion how many practice it's not sure you know and at what level they practice that's another thing so one of the main uh, uh, the main things that drives most of us actually to find a spiritual teaching, find something, uh, to look to search for something, a spiritual teaching, is actually our dissatisfaction with our lives. You know what the unsatisfactory things in our lives they drive us actually to search, and these things can be you know physical, of course. Sometimes they're physical, like we have uh, sickness or old age or we're facing death, you know, we're all facing death actually, so uh, it's, it's one of the, it could be one of those things. And the Buddha actually, he called those Deva Dutas, Deva is like divine, and Dutta is a uh, messenger, messenger, so divine messengers. I think, I don't know how many people think of them <laughs> as divine messengers, but they're, uh, but they certainly wake us up, and they make us ask, you know, what how do I deal with this? You know, how do I deal with sickness, old age, and death? And you're not alone. If you think uh, you know uh, you're the only one that's asked those questions, you're not alone because it's why the Buddha actually became the Buddha. Those those things propelled him to find a way beyond old age, sickness, and death. And he did. He found a way, and that is, of course, attaining nibbana. So. This is a very important thing, and of course, it's not only the physical, and the Buddha was pointing to this when he talks about the first noble truth of suffering or unsatisfactoriness, it's also the mental states we experience, and this drives us very much. For me, it was uh, important too, you know, because we experience, most people will experience sometime in their life, anxiety, depression, fear, uh, jealousy, anger, we see people with rage, all these things are, you know, within our experience, and we realise it doesn't take uh, it doesn't take an Albert Einstein to realise these are unpleasant, and we have to do something about them. So often, taking up a spiritual path is very much that, you know, dealing with these uh, um, unsatisfactory elements of life, you know, whether it be the physical, as I mentioned, or the mental, and to find some sort of peace or resolution with these things, some sort of understanding of them is very important. And um, hand in hand with that, it goes hand in hand with that, is actually our search for happiness. <laughs> this is actually what drives uh, most human beings, is the search for happiness, looking for that sense of ease and contentment and peace with the world, not only with the world, but with ourselves. You know, finding something uh, amidst the 
ups and downs of life that is, that is sort of stable and we can feel a sense of a security and happiness there. And as recently there was a lovely uh, a book with a lovely title, and some of you may know it, and I, I really like this one, it's called A Mind at Home with Itself. A Mind at Home with Itself. It's just lovely, it's very nice. And that, in a sense, that's the aim of Buddhism, you know, a mind at home with itself. And this is what we would all like to experience, isn't it? Just to be, the sense of being at home with yourself. Being at home. If you're at home with yourself, very likely, isn't it, you'll be at home with the world, the external situations. If we come from a sense of peace, happiness, contentment uh, within ourselves, then it's very much easier to interact with the world to deal with it in a wise way and especially when things don't go the way we wish so this is this is very uh, it's very important it's what we're really looking for and I like um, I always like uh, Ajahn Chah's there's a, a, a teaching Ajahn Chah gave called our real home our real home that's what we he used that that phrase in the teaching actually but that's what we're all searching for, our real home, you know, and that sense of peace and happiness, contentment within, fulfillment within. And of course this is very much what the, the Buddha is aiming at, what the teachings are aiming at, that, that inner sense of ease and peace. And of course the last thing, and this, this was very important for me too, it's probably very important for most of us here actually, and, and it is for any... any um, any members of any spiritual tradition actually, is meaning in life. We really crave meaning. Meaning is very important for us to, to know why we're here, you know, because that's a very common question is, why am I here? <laughs> why am I here? And of course this is the meaning of life we're seeking. And it's, it is actually something that's, uh, that we, uh, we need actually to survive. And uh, I remember, some of you might have read this book actually, by Viktor Frankl. Have you read Man's Search for Meaning? Fantastic book, it really is. I haven't read it for years, I'd like to read it again. But it, this is a story, well it's not a story, it's factual. <laughs> a man's experience in the, the concentration camps in Germany in the, uh, during the Second World War. And he was Jewish and he was a, uh, he was a psychologist and still uh, and uh, survived the experience actually so he continued and he wrote the book <laughs> and he was in this concentration camp and the things that he wrote in that book were amazing because people you know concentration camp must be the most brutal uh, horrific sort of place to be in you know to live in and uh, so much uncertainty insecurity as i said fear and anxiety must go with it and I was amazed in that book, you can read for yourself, some people, it's not all, you know, not lots of people did it, some people would be able to manage to go within, to leave the external world, which is absolutely horrific, and go within and find joy and peace within, in that setting. Amazing, isn't it? And we have difficulty at, at home. <laughs> so if they can do it in a concentration camp, wow. But they're the very few, you know, it's not everybody that can do that. But sometimes you do see that when people are pushed, they're at their limit, they will, you know, go within and then get to this deep source of peace that's inside. This deep inner sense of security too and well-being that uh, is just unbelievable, unbelievable considering the circumstances they're in, a concentration camp. So 
this is this is possible, and that was not the the the, the point of uh, mentioning Viktor Frankl, though. But he there's another story in there that he mentions of a man who had this idea that the war, the Second World War, would end on I think it was in March 1945. He thought it would end. He had this dream, and in that it ended on this exact day. And so he was, you know, he was really quite happy. It gave him a sense of purpose, and uh, he was looking forward to it and uh, ready for it. And it's absolutely certain, absolutely certain. And then the day came. The war didn't end. The next day came, and then it went on. And then he became uh, de depressed with it, despair, despairing about it. And then eventually he died, because Victor. This is what Victor Frankl says. He says he lost his meaning. But in the same way, we all need meaning and purpose in our lives. If we don't have purpose in our lives, they seem meaningless. And uh, Viktor Frankl has a very nice saying in that book. You probably, I think it's in that book. He says that suffering, suffering, this is a very Buddhist term, without meaning equals despair. Suffering without meaning equals despair. You could say depression Many. This is this is what we're experiencing in modern society, isn't it? In a very large degree, is people have this sense of the there's no purpose in life, there's no meaning. It's sort of random, and and they feel like they're getting a poor deal at, uh, out of it. And so then it hasn't got a meaning for them. It hasn't got a meaning. So therefore, they they are very prone, as naturally you would be, you know, to depression and despair. That's very common, and I think we see it. Um, particularly, I see it with uh, young people committing suicide. I, I know it's a big phenomenon throughout the world. I see it in Sri Lanka. Just before I left Sri Lanka, uh, just over a week ago, a woman came to me and told me about her 18-year-old son who'd committed suicide three months before. Only son. It was amazing, you know. And I, I, I've heard a few other suicides in Sri Lanka, you know, of young, young, mainly young uh, men, young boys. Uh, committing suicide, in the sense of despair, or uh, one would imagine despair has driven them to it. And of course the parents always feel, why did they do it? They, they, that's very hard for them, actually. So this is, this is a very important reason why people, why we, you know, search for a spiritual teaching, search for a path, and uh, is meaning, and its meaning is very important to us. So I think... Um, So it's good, good for us also to reflect, you know, whatever spiritual tradition we are involved with, to, to think that, um, to remember what brought us to Buddhism, what brought us to whatever religion we are involved with. What were the, what were the motivating, motivating factors? Because it's good to remember those, bring them up and renew them. Um, because then we can, we can check. These have been like aims or goals that we've, we've been searching for. So we can check, are we realizing those aims or goals? Are we, uh, is it what we thought it would be? And the Buddha gave a very lovely way to check up if we are making progress, because this is what basically everybody wants to do, is make progress in, in their path, uh, whatever path they're practicing, and particularly make progress towards happiness. And the Buddha said, very simple, if you can see that wholesome states are increasing, you know, these are the positive states in mind, and the negative states are decreasing, then you're making progress. Because very often for us, isn't it, it's gradual. 
grandchildren. The Buddha had a uh, very nice simile of that. He said, it's like a tool that has a handle, and you use the tool often, but it's only after a long time you see that it's the handle, maybe it's wooden, is wearing away, and you see the wear. And in the same way, it's often very slow for us to see the progress. And often, you know, we don't check up. We don't check up, and it's good to check up, see what, what we were um, interested in developing when we undertook this path. And it actually renews or uh, uh, revitalizes our energy, gives us more energy, actually. And maybe, you know, hopefully, <laughs> we also get some happiness out of it because we think, well, I, yeah, I have changed, you know. This is, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not as angry as I used to be, you know. Um, I'm not as jealous, I'm not, uh, you know, as greedy as I used to be. It's reduced some of these negative qualities. And that, that gives us even more incentive to practice. Unfortunately, <laughs> because life uh, for most people is fairly fast and furious, we say, fast and furious, they don't have time to check up. But it's good to do that, just to do a review on um, how we're going. You know, are we, are we realizing the aims that uh, we had in mind when we undertook this path? So this is something that's very useful. And it's good too, this is important with the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, to remember that uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, like many spiritual teachings, is a whole. It's a, it fits together. It has a purpose. Everything in it has a purpose. And we have a tendency, I was reading Bhikkhu Bodhi last night, and he was talking about this tendency. We have a tendency in, in modern day life to just pick and choose bits and pieces that we like from different traditions. So, you know, and he, you know, you might be doing some Sufi dancing and some Buddhist meditation and, uh, uh, you know, something else, you know. You could be doing a whole range of practices. And uh, he's made, he makes the point, and I think it's very valid that with, especially with the Noble Eightfold Path, it is a complete whole practice. And it's good if we can take that whole practice on board. And admittedly, we may practice it in a different order from other people, but that's not, that doesn't matter. So I think probably the next thing to, uh, to address is what, what is the Noble Eightfold Path? I think everybody here knows, but <laughs> nevertheless, I like to uh, use the Buddha's words because that's uh, it's coming straight from the Buddha, and that's the, that's the best. The Noble Eightfold Path, of course, is the first teaching the Buddha gave. It's in the first teaching, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, and this is the turning of the wheel, the wheel of Dhamma, and that actually is a very useful symbol. I was going to mention that that it actually symbolizes, uh, if you've seen, I don't know if you've got one here, symbolizes the Noble Eightfold Path, because it's a wheel and it's got eight spokes, and so there are eight factors in the Noble Eightfold Path, and they all meet in the center. And this is like the Noble Eightfold Path, that, it's, that it is a uh, complete entity. If you, if you took the spokes out of a wheel, this spoke out, that spoke out, eventually the wheel wouldn't work at all. And this is the, the message, part of the message of the Dhamma Chakra, you know, the wheel of Dhamma, that these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are important, and uh, none of them we can do without. None of them we can do without. So, and they all, of course, the hub, what the hub is sort of like, the where it's leading to, you could say. It's leading to liberation. They all lead to, they all uh, support liberation. And that liberation is the liberation of the mind from all suffering. 
And that's the goal of the Buddha's teaching, and it's, it's what most people are looking for, <laughs> in one form or another. Though sometimes people, they they are looking for happiness in the wrong places, and that's fairly obvious. So the Dhammachaka is a uh, is the first first teaching that the Buddha gave, and of course it's about the four noble truths. Uh, you might have heard of the four noble truths: the noble truth of we say suffering or unsatisfactoriness the origin of uh, that uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness and the cessation of that uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness and the way leading to that cessation of uh, unsatisfactoriness or suffering. And of course the way leading to it is the practice part, isn't it? And this is the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's a it's such a neat teaching. This gives you an idea of you know how comprehensive and how integrated it all is. That the four noble truths includes the noble eightfold path we are talking about. So I'm talking about today, and the first factor of uh, the noble eightfold path is we call right view or um, right understanding. Sometimes people call it right understanding. Quite nice actually. And part of that, part of right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> so, it, so it dovetails, I say dovetails, it ties in together very, very well that uh, the Four Noble Truths includes the Noble Eightfold Path and the Noble Eightfold Path includes the Four Noble Truths. So it all ties together very well. And this is what you see with the, the Buddha's teaching, actually. I'm, more and more I see it. You know, Everything has a purpose and fits together and you can use it and develop it and it will support your practice. And uh, this, this is uh, essential, really, to the, to the path. So, let's just... Uh, I'll read the Buddha's words, uh, not my own, so then you, you're getting it uh, straight, from, <laughs> straight from the text. There are, two, there are these two extremes that should be avoided. The pursuit of happiness through the five senses. This is Ajahn Brahm's translation, if you're wondering where this comes from. Yes. It's good, though, I think. Which is low, this is hina, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, uh, unbeneficial. And the second one is the pursuit of practices that fatigue the body and mind. This is often called um, self-mortification. Self-mortification. doesn't mean much in English, actually, that word. And he said, and the Buddha continues, which is painful, and certainly is, ignoble and unbeneficial. Without going to either of these extremes, the Buddha has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to wisdom, which leads to peace, which leads to direct understanding, to enlightenment and to Nibbāna. Nibbana. It is this Noble Eightfold Path, uh, which is the middle way, right view or right understanding, right uh, motivation, often called right intention or right thought, in other translations, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right endeavor or right effort, samavayama, right mindfulness and right stillness. Or people are very used to uh, concentration, right concentration, but it's uh, Ajahn Brahm and I, I agree, it, it gives the wrong, wrong feeling for uh, meditation as, as being strong effort <laughs> and using force. And the Buddha concludes in this section, anyway, this is only a quote from the, the actual teaching. This, this is that middle way awakened to by the Buddha, which gives rise to vision, 
which gives rise to wisdom, which gives rise to peace, gives rise to direct understanding, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So this this is giving the context of the, of the Noble Eightfold Path, all these eight factors that we need to develop in order to realize the ending of suffering. And none of them, as I say, are, can we do without. Sometimes people try, <laughs> they try to do without some factor or another, you know. So, But in actual fact, when you... Uh, Ajahn Chah often said too that for... Uh, Western, as he noticed, Ajahn Chah was a, uh, a meditation master in northeast Thailand, and uh, he passed away in the 92, 91 he passed away, and um, he noticed, he was, had a very great rapport with Westerners actually, with foreigners, and uh, taught a lot, and he noticed that they, uh, most of the, uh, the Westerners who became monks under him, um, they, they started with meditation, and then um, they would develop sila. Then perhaps dana would come after that. So he said, it, no matter, it's all connected. It's all connected. One supports the other. But usual, the usual uh, way of developing the path, of course, is dana. Dana is giving, generosity. And then sila, ethical behavior, or body and speech. And then bhavana, mental cultivation, is the usual way in a traditional Buddhist society. That's how you you would teach it, but he said in the West because he also travelled to um, Britain and America and taught there, so he saw firsthand <laughs> how people how people um, uh, practice. But of course, if you develop the mind, if you develop meditation, you develop some mindfulness, stillness. You're going to see, aren't you? It's very very quickly you see. Well, my behaviour is important, you know, uh, of body and speech. That's important. And also, you see, you need these positive mind states actually to support the development of meditation because they are uh, the springboard actually for going deeper. If we're unhappy, it's very unlikely the meditation will come together. So this is, these are very important things we see. So we see it all interconnecting. So... These, uh, these factors, I'll just run over them briefly, actually mention them briefly, and then uh, start with, uh, first of all, uh, right view or right understanding is very important, actually. Um, sometimes people say, well, why is it the first factor? Because, you know, if you have to develop sila, usually they develop sila first, and then um, meditation, bhavana, and then wisdom. There's another, another way of looking at it. So why, um, why is it the first factor in the Noble Eightfold Path? And one of the very good reasons for it being the first factor, uh, it's also the last factor too, because as we grow and our understanding really matures, then that side of right view wisdom really comes together. And we have, you know, we have a real understanding that leads to breakthrough actually then. So the, the reason we need it at the beginning, isn't it, is that it gives us the incentive to, to practice, actually. We, we, uh, if we have a right view, if we have an idea that the Buddha's teaching can help us, it can lead to us uh, being more at peace with ourselves, we can understand the, uh, the difficulties in our lives, the dissatisfaction or the unsatisfactory elements of our life, then this is, this is going to propel us to practice the, the Buddha's uh, path. 
And uh, so it, it is a very important stepping stone, the beginning actually of, of the practice. And this is where you have, we have to have some idea that maybe this teaching will be of benefit to me. Maybe it addresses what I need to know. And the, the big issues that we all need to know, aren't they, are this unsatisfactoriness for sure, the sufferings in our lives. And also the other thing is the fact that uh, everything is very temporary. We see things changing around us. Uh, we see that uh, nothing is, is uh, stable and permanent, which many people would like. Permanency, and also we also most of us experience this is the big troublemaker in life, this feeling of self. <laughs> what to do about this feeling of self? You know, uh, how do we come to terms with it? How do we come to peace with it and and deal with it? Inquire into it. So this uh, teaching of the Buddha, this uh, right view or right understanding, is focusing on these areas. Principally, first of all, through uh, the noble, uh, the four noble truths. Of course, they're there, and they're the main focus of right view, and it encompasses nearly everything else. But it also includes in right view the sense that there is a result from giving. This is a very important uh, dana. We, we say the word dana, generosity, it is a point. It does have a significance, and and in relation to that, that there is karma. That what we do. Uh, positively or negative, negatively creates a result uh, from that. There will be effects that arise from that, either in accordance to the original uh, action, whether it, if it's an, uh, a negative action, then a negative result will uh, in, in, uh, follow. And if it's a positive one, then a, f a positive a result or reaction will, will follow. So this is very important too. And then the other thing that's very important, and these things... And rebirth is very important, the idea that we have more than one life. And, uh, so, and also the, the other essential thing of right view is that there are enlightened beings, and uh, in this case principally, <laughs> that the Buddha was enlightened. Having said those things, you know, having said that right view is you know, the Four Noble Truths, and it's especially karma, rebirth, and uh, believing in uh, enlightened beings, we don't have to take that on board 100%. We are there, we can inquire into it. And people, in, even in Sri Lanka, actually, they ask me, you know, do you have to believe in uh, karma and rebirth to be a Buddhist? And the answer, of course, is no. No, you don't. You know, you just have, the only uh, requirement, actually, uh, to become a Buddhist is really uh, taking the three refuges and the, just the three refuges, actually. You know, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and that's that's the qualification for becoming a Buddhist, becoming a practice practicing Buddhist, of course, five precepts, <laughs> but uh, that's not asked even at that stage. So, so this is uh, very much the right view shouldn't be seen as you know, like uh, some people might think of it. You have to have to believe in this. If you don't believe in it, forget about it. <laughs> the Buddha is not saying that because, of course. The whole of Buddha's path is about investigation, knowing for ourselves, understanding for ourselves. And this is what we do uh, with the right view, gradually, gradually. You know, many people when they come to uh, Buddhism, uh, they find, uh, say, not karma, not so difficult. Because if you come from a Christian background, isn't it, you, you tend to think, you know, as you sow, so shall, we, so shall you reap, which is what Jesus said. And so people in a, a more Christian-oriented society, they're used to that idea of karma, so that's not so, so difficult to take on board. 
Uh, but rebirth is, is more, uh, um, many people find that more difficult. Though these days that's changing too, isn't it? It's, I hear a lot of people believe in rebirth and there's a lot of um, you know, scientific evidence for it. So it's quite, quite um, now it's becoming more acceptable. So now the second factor of the, the Noble Eightfold, it's very important with any undertaking in life, isn't it? We have a clear idea of what our aims are, our view of what we want to achieve, where we're going. And this is what Right View is about. We're clear from where, where we're coming from. And it, in a sense, it propels us in a particular direction towards liberation, actually, or greater, greater happiness in this life. Yes. So uh, the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, everybody probably knows it, Samasankapa, that's often translated as right intention, right thought. But I like uh, Ajahn Brahm's translation of uh, right motivation. It's really good. Right motivation. So it's different. So it makes you think, you know. But it's where we're coming from. And this is actually vital for how we practice, isn't it? Because it's all very well to have a goal, a name, a clear idea of what what the purpose of a path is, you know, but how the quality of how we travel that path is also essential. Do we travel it uh, with a lot of positive mind states or a lot of negative mind states? You know, and this is, this is very important uh, for us. And sometimes people forget this, you know, Samasankapa. Of course, those that have heard Ajahn Brahm teach are reminded all the time, so it's very good. But uh, so this is letting go is one of the first qualities of uh, 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 right motivation. So letting go of unwholesome things in our life, letting go of uh, you know of greed, of the anger in our life, and and also to uh, letting go of delusion if we can. The biggest delusion for all of us is really the sense of self, which which uh, causes a lot of suffering. If people. If people don't think that, just check up in your life. You know, <laughs> of course, you're a lot of suffering. If people, you know, uh, um, you know, abuse you or whatever, you very quickly see if they blame you, criticize you. This sense of self comes up really strongly, and it's good to investigate. What's this all about? You know, so this is a, a very, uh, very important area for us to, as it were, let go. Let go. Have have uh, patience. Develop patience. And the other other quality that the uh, of right motivation, isn't it, is non uh, non anger or non ill will. They sometimes say. And this, in a more positive um, uh, way, is loving kindness. It includes much more, of course. When you say non ill will, it can include, you know, qualities like patience, kanti. That that. Uh, being able to bear with difficult situations without having negative <laughs> a negative mind state. Sometimes people can, you know, they can bear with things, but they're gritting their teeth and, and they're very angry inside. No good, no good, no good for them actually. So, uh, but loving kindness is is uh, is a very the most important expression of non ill will, and then non harming. This is that. Um, uh, that that uh, uh, motivation that drives us to hurt others, either by speech or ourselves, 
ourselves to, uh, by speech or by action. You know, we can say some uh, terrible things to people that really put them in their place, <laughs> and that's not uh, that's not good. We feel it later. Actually, we feel it. So these these uh, um, right motivations very important for how we practice the path, because if we practice the path with a lot of uh, wanting to get things, whether it be spiritual attainments or, or other things, it's usually spiritual attainments if you're practicing a spiritual path, or if we have a, a real um, sense of uh, going out, out there and uh, uh, doing it very forcefully, that won't help much either. That's not a good motivation. You know, of course, energy is important. It is important. But if it's a sort of this negative, you know, sort of macho type uh, approach, this is not good. And of course, harming ourselves or others, you know, is obviously not good, not good. So that's, this is, there's those two, the sense of where we're going and how we travel that path, very important, they're the most important. And then after that we have right speech, and that is a very big area in society. Right speech always refers to, of course, firstly, lying, you know, not lying. This is what we're restraining ourselves from in the five precepts. And also from uh, sometimes called divisive speech, you know, telling uh, telling tales to other people about other people so that the person we tell the tale to feels uh, divided from, feels negative towards the person that we're, uh, we're talking about. So this is a quality that doesn't lead to harmony, doesn't lead to our happiness either for that matter. <laughs> And um, and then after that, of course, there is a harsh speech, and this is uh, uh, sometimes very evident on YouTube and <laughs> the internet in, in general, and Australian society in particular. You know, harsh speech is you know rough speech. It's uh, swearing and all those sorts of things. Abusive speech, isn't it? You know, abusive. Not only swearing, because sometimes people can um, speak very harshly, and it's not they're not using any four-letter words or whatever, but. Uh, are very common. So, and then the last type of uh, right speech, of course, is um, avoiding gossip and uh, uh, gossip and idle, idle chatter. They call it because this just distracts the mind. It just, it, it, it's entertaining in a sense, <laughs> and most of the internet built on it. Actually, I think <laughs> all this news that we see, you know, and gossip about various celebrities and what they're doing and <laughs> whatnot. Yes. And so that's a very important part of our lives. And of course, right action is, is very is is the five precepts, but without the fifth precept, of course, it's uh, so it's not uh, not intentionally harming uh, living beings. It's not taking what's not given. It's stealing, isn't it? And it's not sexual misconduct, which we see happening a lot these days in the news. We hear a lot of news about it. And it's not uh, uh, the, those three actually, because we've got lying already actually, and it's not including um, avoiding taking alcohol or other intoxicants. It doesn't include that for some reason. That's that's in the five precepts. So that's uh, um, right action. That's very important. And then right livelihood. There are livelihoods that don't harm ourselves. You know, in terms of bad karma. You know, making. Uh, making negative karma and don't harm others. So amongst those trades that the Buddha mentioned for for uh, uh, lay people, he also mentioned some for monks too, but not the same five. 
um, are things like being involved in the meat industry, you know, uh, which requires killing animals and so on, and uh, in uh, industries that are, are um, based on or activities that are based on alcohol, drugs, those sorts of things, on uh, people, things that exploit people. So this is, you know, like uh, people traffickers these days are making a lot of money out of people's misery <laughs> and also, uh, you know, exploiting, say, in prostitution and things like that. So these, these are some of the uh, wrong livelihoods that the Buddha pointed to. And they're very obvious, isn't it, why you would think these are not, not good things, actually, not good things. And after right livelihood, of course, is right um, action, or Ajahn Brahm's now calling it right endeavor. And this is central to, to the, how we practice the whole path as well, because right, um, uh, right effort is aiming at four things. And they, they interlock very well. First of all, to avoid negative states of mind, if possible. So we know ourselves, and we know what things uh, bring up negative states of mind, and we avoid those if we can. The second thing is, if a negative state happens to arise, which can uh, happens quite frequently, then we, we abandon it, we let go of it. And then the other side of the coin is, if uh, we develop positive states of mind, that we don't have at the moment, that are not in our experience, in our mind at the moment. And then we maintain those positive states of mind. And you can see the two, they fit together, because if you develop positive states of mind, you're avoiding negative states of mind, and you don't need to abandon, actually. If you maintain them, of course, then there's very little scope for these uh, negative qualities to come up in the mind. So this right effort is really pointing to the fact that we're monitoring our experience all the time and, uh, and uh, you know, sort of seeing what qualities are in the mind. And we need to develop, of course, an X-factor mindfulness, which everybody has uh, probably knows a lot about. So mindfulness, being in the present moment, uh, knowing uh, what's happening in this present moment, and letting go of the past and the future. But also mindfulness has the sense of uh, memory as well, memory that we remember things from a long time ago. So Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's um, personal assistant, you might say, was he was the foremost in sati, in mindfulness, because he could remember incredible amount of the Buddha's teachings. In fact, most of the Buddha's teachings that we have are due to him, his memory, fantastic memory. It was incredible. And uh, so uh, mindfulness is very important, of course, for all the other factors too. They support each other. If you're not mindful, how can you keep um, right speech? How can you keep right action? And so on, you know, and develop the other factors of the path. So all of this feeds in. And of course, the last one that uh, I was going to mention is uh, right uh, stillness, or often known as concentration here <laughs> in, uh, in a lot of the books. And uh, that is very important too. That is that de that develops actually, in a sense, from some from sati. This is called samadhi in uh, the Pali terms, and it's always the Buddha is always teaching it as the four jhanas, which uh, um, are the deep states of meditation, very deep states of stillness, which give rise to a, a very powerful mind, very penetrative mind that can, can uh, see things as they really are. In fact, the Buddha said that uh, the condition, the cause for samadhi, for this stillness to arise, is happiness. Then there's the stillness, this really one-pointedness, 
of mind where it's a lot of bliss, happiness. And then from that, this, this powerful still mind, then insight can arise, seeing things as they are, gata buddha, jnana dasana. So this is very important, um, uh, important thing to develop. Whether we can develop uh, the jhanas or not, we need some uh, stillness of mind, some degree of stillness of mind. And Ajahn Shah, when asked how much, how much samadhi do we need, how much stillness, how much concentration, he said, enough, <laughs> enough. I think, wow. But of course, that's, a, that's as it is, you know, that's the way life is, because you know, you know, for, uh, if you develop stillness of mind, there will, will come some insights. And uh, the more stillness, the bigger the insight, actually. So, I'd just like to finish off by, uh, first of all, saying that the purpose of the Noble Eightfold Path is threefold, and that is happiness here and now, because it actually makes it possible for us to avoid creating negative karma, which we can experience in this life, and, and uh, develop positive karma. So happiness in this life, happiness in future lives, if people believe in future lives. And then the third thing is that one can experience nibbana, the highest happiness, the fin- finishing with all delusion, with all unsatisfactoriness, the, the end of uh, all that. So that's the aims of the, uh, the Buddha's teaching. And I'd like to conclude with an encouraging uh, comment from the Buddha. And uh, this is again Ajahn Brahm's translation. It's quite, I like it. It's quite good. Uh, listen, it says, listen, the end of dying has been reached. I shall instruct you. I shall teach you the Dhamma. Practicing as you are instructed by re- realizing for yourself in this very life through direct understanding you will soon enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which people rightly go forth into monastic life. So that's it. That's good. So it's an encouragement for us to know that if we practice, we'll get the results ourselves. And they they will be good results, actually. Happiness in this life, in future lives, or even attaining nibbana.